1: This episode of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast is brought to you in part by iFly Virginia Beach Indoor Skydiving. At iFly Virginia Beach, we bring people together through the dream of flight. Visit our website at iflyvabeach.com to learn more about our group events to include leadership development, team building, and family fun.
0: In this series, entrepreneurs, industry executives, academics, public figures, and other highly effective professionals share their formulas for success with you.
1: Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Elevate Your Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Bob Pizzini. If you've listened to my podcast before, you know that I like to have discussions with guests who not only will bring great value to me and my organization, But these are people who I know will bring great value to you and your organization. I'm really excited about today's guest, Rod Collins. Rod is a leading expert and thought leader on the self-managed organization and the future of business. He is a regular blog contributor on Substack, where he explores how technological innovations continue to transform the rules for how successful businesses work. He is also the author of Wiki Management, a revolutionary new model for a rapidly changing and collaborative world, which highlights the innovative tools and practices used by a new breed of business leaders to sustain extraordinary performance in a world reshaped by digital disruption. Wow. Rod is the former chief operating executive of the Blue Cross Blue Shield Federal Employee Program, one of the nation's largest and most successful business alliances. Under his leadership, the business experienced its greatest five-year growth period in its 60-year history. Rod Collins, welcome to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast.
2: Thank you, Bob. Good to be with you.
1: So Rod, you've lived a very interesting life. You've done some pretty cool things. How long were you with Blue Cross Blue Shield?
2: I was with them for uh, 33 years. So uh, a job that I thought I would stay with for about a year turned into a a career.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of the same thing with my military career. I thought I was going to enlist for four years and it turned into 26. Where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about how Rod Collins became Rod Collins.
2: Well, I grew up in uh, Brooklyn, New York. An avid New York Mets fan, so I'm a little down (laughs) these days. And uh, I went to school in Washington, D.C. I did my undergraduate work at Catholic University in sociology and my master's uh, work at George Washington University in business financial management and spent a large part of my adult life in the D.C. area. I left Blue Cross Blue Shield in uh, 2007, Uh, lived in Denver, Colorado for about seven years and then uh, moved to Texas in 2014, which is where I am now in the uh, great hill country outside San Antonio.
1: Wow. A New Yorker who spent a bunch of time in other parts of the East Coast and then Colorado, which is that state is awesome for just a variety of reasons. But then how did you wind up in Texas after, after uh, living in such diverse places?
2: Well, we kept taking our vacations at beaches. My wife and I said, "Why do we live in in uh, Colorado when we like the beach so much?" So we we moved to Texas to get closer to water.
1: Okay, good. So and, you're uh,
2: and, and for and for the warm temperatures, I really got tired of shoveling
1: snow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I grew up shoveling snow. I prefer to never shovel snow again. But okay, well, that's you know that's a real broad spectrum, a very diverse background, both educationally and geographically. And uh, yeah, I think those things are important in developing leaders. What was it like to be the chief executive at Blue Cross Blue Shield?
2: It was an interesting and I'd say a transformative experience. Prior to being the chief executive, I spent about four or five years as leading their operations. And that's where I really became familiar with a very different management model because we were faced with a unique problem. Uh, and that is, we needed to turn our business around. It had sustained about two decades of mediocre growth and uh, mediocre financial performance and and we wanted to restore it to a, a great position. and the first observation I had when I was asked to lead the operations was we're leading a network, not a hierarchy, and yet we were using hierarchical management approaches because that's all you
1: learned. that's how many people in that network.
2: Well, literally thousands of people. I mean, it was a Blue Cross Blue Shield. and A lot of people may not realize that it. It's not a centralized company. It's a, it's a federation. At the time, it was 39 separate companies. I believe today it's 35 separate companies. And they needed to deliver a seamless product, which is uh, health insurance for federal employees. Okay. And the Blue Cross Blue Shield Federal Employee Program is literally the largest privately underwritten health insurance account in the world. When I left it, it was $19 billion. I think it's over wow. $30 billion today. Wow. And it covers, you know, it covers uh, roughly four and a half million federal employees and their and their uh, family members. And so the light bulb went off. This isn't a hierarchy, it's a network. And so we had to learn how to lead a network. And there wasn't a lot of literature out there on how to do that. So we did a lot of pathfinding, a lot of trailblazing and wind up creating tools and practices, and implemented a very different management discipline that was immensely successful. We did accomplish the turnaround. And about five years after being asked to take over the operations, I I became the program's chief executive. This new management discipline not only worked to turn around the business, but it actually led to a significant growth period in the business. One of the things I'm most proud of is we had two basic products And one of those products did not have a rate increase the entire five years that I was the chief executive of the program. That's almost unheard of in the health insurance context.
1: Yeah, it seems like those costs uh, go up on a regular basis. Let's talk a little bit about wiki management. And does that overlay against this new organizational structure that you just mentioned?
2: Yeah, wiki management is a term that I've been using for for managing in a post digital world, and uh, the wiki is one of the tools in that digital post digital world. But the real core of, of wiki management is is self management. Okay. Self management is, uh, and this is networks. I think in their most mature form are organizations that don't have bosses, organizations that are team based, and teams make their own decisions. Now, obviously. In the Blue Cross Blue Shield context, we didn't have the freedom to do that. And so what we did is in the context of a hierarchy, we were able to establish a network structure that worked and uh, use some of the same principles that you would see in self-managed organizations. Others have done that as well. For example, some may be familiar with uh, alliance between Toyota and General Motors. I think it was called Numi. Uh, that operated for, for quite a number of years. That, uh, that was more or less a self-management uh, structure. There were also divisions within the Ford Motor Company that applied these principles in a similar way. Uh, what tends to happen is once the leaders who lead this type of structure move on, if you haven't changed the, D, the fundamental DNA of the organization, it has a tendency to go back to the traditional hierarchy. True self-management companies can't do that because when the next CEO comes in, that CEO doesn't have command and control authority and is mainly the CEO in a self-managed company is mainly there for external interface. And I'm sure as we have our discussion here, we'll get into the the dynamics of this uh, a little more thoroughly. But in terms of what I did in the Blue Cross Blue Shield context, to the extent that I could We used the tools and practices of self-managed networks to lead this organization. And if you think about it, the the 39 separate organizations, they were all independent. So they were going to manage themselves. And so the basic idea behind our management model is we're not going to tell them what to do. We're going to put in place meeting protocols. We're going to put in place tools, practices, and disciplines where we can decide things together in ways that worked. And that is what drove the turnaround.
1: What are you said? Some of the tools and practices of self-management. What are some of those?
2: All right. So self-managed structures. Let me give an example, a very concrete example, and then I'll tie in uh, what we did that was similar in Blue Cross Blue Shield. So Bertzorg is a home health. I'm sorry, a nursing home health company in in the Netherlands. And uh, Joost de Bloch, who started it, felt that the traditional way of managing nursing organizations, which is to have centralized schedules and centralized planners, and that could result in, in nurse A is there on Monday with a patient, nurse B is there on, on Wednesday, and a third different nurse will be there on Friday. Joost thought, you know, we could create a more human circumstance if we set up a different organization where uh, the fundamental business unit was a team of 10 to 12 people, and they will direct all their own activities. They'll set up scheduling, they'll, they'll handle their budgets, they'll handle their hiring. There won't be any one person who will be in charge of that group. They will all decide things as, as collegial co-equals. Well, it was so successful that to this startup now employs 70% of all home health nurses in the Netherlands they've reduced costs by 40% because it turns out that when when you have one nurse going to the patient continually informing the human relationship and understanding that patient better they recover quicker and they're less likely to wind up in a hospital and so it reduced the time and the cost and and improved the quality of the whole arrangement by what lens. happens
1: what happens in that scenario when you know, nurse A and nurse B and, and nurse C, none of them want to work on Wednesday, or none of them can work on Wednesday. I mean, th- there has to be some form of—I don't know what the right word is—authority, or you know, uh, how, how do they how do they resolve differences? I guess would be the way to ask it.
2: They work it out. So if they can't, they'll hire somebody who's available on Wednesdays. They have the ability to do that. Okay. Okay. In this organization, no one comes in with command authority. And this is hard for a lot of us to grasp because our whole concept of organizations is somebody's got to be in charge.
1: Well, let me, let me just, I I was overlaying when you were describing that, I was thinking, you said, you know, nobody's telling them what to do, but I mean, they have a mission. Their mission is to provide that nursing care, that healthcare, if you will. But in in a military model, um, I served for 26 years, we would deploy to an area. And once we were there, we had a broad mission, commander's intent. And it was up to us to determine how we're going to execute the commander's intent. Now, within that team or that platoon or that unit or that company or that battalion, clearly there's a hierarchy right down to the lowest person. But ultimately, the higher authority said, You go over there and here's your broad mission. And it was up to us to figure out how we would do that. I don't know if there's a comparison there, if that's a reasonable comparison or not.
2: So what you've just described takes us back. I remember I said I would tie this into what we did with Blue Cross Blue Shield. Yeah, sorry. No, no, what (laughs) you described is similar to what we did. So there, you know, what you described in the military, and I think the military and the public may not be aware of this, is applying a lot of network management structures, especially in the field. And so they're kind of hybrid because you you still have the bosses at the Pentagon and you still have the generals giving direction. But actually how to do it is left up to self-managed teams. And and General Stanley McChrystal wrote about this in his book, Team of Teams. Mm -hmm. He described military leaders need to transform themselves from chess masters to gardeners. And I love that analogy because as I look upon what we did in Blue Cross Blue Shield, that's exactly what we did. We shifted from chess masters to gardeners. And the overall hierarchy the, you know, remained. But within that, within this business unit, we applied network techniques and disciplines. So let me describe one that we specifically use that was extremely powerful. We invented a meeting format we call the collective intelligence workshop. And what we would do in order to come up with what we were going to do, rather than to give commands and orders or directions from Washington, which is where headquarters for FEP was, what we would do is we would assemble 40 to 50 people from the various 39 organizations in a hotel room for two or three days. And we would have these, what we call collective intelligence workshops. And the idea was to get a microcosm of the business in the room. That meant we had high level, low level people, all disciplines represented. So that when you looked across the room, we literally had a microcosm of the business. So yes, this meant we might have a senior VP and we also might have an analyst that we hired who's two weeks out of college in the same meeting with the same voice because in networks, everyone has equal voices. As the leader of these sessions, I literally had the highest title in the room, but I voluntarily agreed I would not express my opinion, even if asked, because if I did, as the highest ranking person in the room, people would say, he's the boss. That's what we're going to do. We might as well For get sure. on board. Any, any leader.
1: Yeah. And, any leader and, who knows what he's doing knows that.
2: And so <laughs> that's what it means to be a gardener and not a chess master to yeah. use Jim Crystal's words. Okay. Yeah. And what we would do is in this session we would have somebody make an opening presentation around the problem that we needed to address and after that and this is where the changes happen we would have a 10-minute period for clarifying questions only most organizations have terrible meeting habits because Mm -hmm. we start talking over each other and we start agreeing and disagreeing before we understand things and so we designed these meetings so uh, on the cubby principle of seek first to understand, then to be understood. So all you could do for those 10 minutes was ask the speaker what their thinking was, whether you agreed or disagreed, didn't matter. And the purpose of the opening presentation was really just to lay down some fundamental understanding of the problem to be solved. Yeah,
1: great process. And the next thing, for sure.
2: next thing we would do is we had people sitting in small tables Uh, maybe groups of eight to 10 per table. And we would ask them, and this is a question that rarely ever gets asked inside traditional organizations of the general organizational population. And their task was this, what are your three to five top observations, opinions, or concerns about what we need to do today? We never ask people that. And so all kinds of people of all levels are answering these questions because that's what we put together in the room. And after a maybe 30, 40 minutes, they all report out what their three to, top three to five observations are. And again, as they report out, people can only ask them clarifying questions. No agreement, no disagreement, no, I got a better way. And the whole purpose of these first hours of the workshop is for everybody to understand different points of view without the stance of agreement or disagreement. And then we would take the results of these table reports would be on flip charts. And then we would all put all the flip charts on one wall. And then we would ask people, look at these items on the flip charts. Let's identify duplicates. And if they are duplicates, we'll keep one, discard the other. But the facilitator doesn't decide. The group decides what we keep. And if two items- Just by by
1: democratic vote, how does the group decide?
2: You just, you you get a sense of the group. You just ask, does this work, that work? And and so there's no, Mm -hmm. it's an informal type thing, but the group is making these decisions. Mm -hmm. And you'll take a list of maybe 30, 35 items and you'll get them down maybe to 10, 12, 15. Mm -hmm. And then what I do is give people stick on dots and usually strips of four and say, vote them any way you want. You can put four dots on one item or you can spread them across four items. It's your choice. So they apply them. And what's interesting is 90 to 95% of the time, there are a t- list of top four items. And what I mean by that is when you do the votes, you'll see something like 29, 28, 27, 25, 14. So you got this break point between 25 and 14.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Generally, it's after the fourth item. And when you when you write those four items on a flip chart, and look at the group and say, if we do these four things, do you think it'll solve the problem? invariably they will say yes that's it and when you look across the four items you'll notice a lot of times item one was important to one faction item two was a was important to an apparently opposing faction Mm
1: -hmm. and if you
2: just discuss those two ideas you might never get to agreement and items three and four were the glue that made the whole set work so that the apparently opposing items actually can work together in the context of the whole set of the four items to be done. We saw this over and over again. And in doing this, we realized that we had discovered an incredible asset that all companies have, but rarely ever use. And it's the collective intelligence of their own people.
1: Yeah. Is there a name for that process? Because there's many ways to employ the collective intelligence as long as they're doing it. But does that process you just described have a specific name or is it?
2: I call it the collective intelligence workshop. But, okay. what, but the important things is, and I'm sure others do similar things with similar names, what you want to be doing is applying the fundamental attributes of what James Sorowake defines as the four characteristics necessary for leveraging collective intelligence. And we discovered by accident that that's what these meetings did.
1: What are the four characteristics?
2: The four characteristics are you need diversity of opinion. And this is something sure. that yeah. we need to learn today. With cancel culture and all of this censorship going on, we are killing our ability to tap into the collective intelligence of our nation because you need diversity of opinion. Soriwaki like says even eccentric points of view. And the analogy I will use for well, why would you include insect, eccentric points of views? And I would ask this, if you made a good Italian sauce, would you not put garlic in it? Garlic is important, but you would never want a hundred percent garlic sauce. That mm-hmm. would be a disaster. And so the eccentrics see a little something that nobody doesn't that like garlic adds some flavor to the sauce. You need all points of view. They need Well, under- just
1: real quick, uh, you know, that diversity of opinion is huge. I think it's that's significant. And, and go ahead, go go to number two.
2: And so the second is related to it. You need independent thinking, which means the ability to express what you think without fear of retaliation. Yeah. The third thing is you need a lot of local knowledge. And I would add, especially in rapidly changing times, and you don't have it in a C-suite. That's why you want to combine people who are closest to customers and processes with senior executives in the same meeting. Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah, your customer facing... Yeah. Your customer-facing teammates, uh, I call that the tactical level of engagement, and they're the eyes and ears of the organization. They know what is going on regarding yes. product or service. Uh, so having them in the room, they should always be in the room.
2: Right. And they see change first. And then the fourth aspect is you need an aggregation mechanism, which is some way to cull and the, the collective intelligence resident in the group. And so when I read Sura Whitey's book, I realized why our collective intelligence workshops work. I also realized why self-managed organizations work, because they meet all four characteristics. Diversity of opinion is welcome. Independent thinking, the way we did in collective intelligence workshops is when ideas were reported, they were from table one or table two. You didn't know if the junior ac- accountant or the senior executive of marketing was the author of the idea. And you want to, do, you want to separate ideas from positions because maybe the person we hired out of college two weeks ago really does have the best idea, even though they don't. For sure. have the best title. Yeah. And so what happened in these meetings is the ideas took a light on a life of their own without being identified with particular authors. And when that happens, you're more likely to combine the strengths of different ideas. And we called it the depoliticization of ideas. Um, And our dot voting voting was the aggregation mechanism that allowed us to call a collective intelligence.
1: How do you maintain, how do you hide the identity of of the source of the idea? In your collective intelligence workshop, everybody's, Making a pitch or a presentation, and so clearly we know who the owner of that concept is. How do you mask that?
2: Actually, you don't, because now you're discussing in tables. Let's say you have five tables, and you tell each the first thing you have to do before you begin your discussion is select a scribe and a presenter, and uh, and only one presenter can present for the table. Got that, it. That's, that's wow. Yeah, 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 and and so and you t- and you tell tables select your presenter wisely. Okay because yeah. that's the only voice your table is going to have. Yeah, okay. In the, re- in the report out, okay? So a lot of effort is put on understanding. And that's why diversity is so important. That's why clarifying questions. I, I have to tell you it's a funny story. I was facilitating one of these sessions, and there was a gentleman from, from our, our New York organization who stood up in real New York form, just stuck his finger at me, and he says, you. And I kind of stepped back, like, I wonder what's coming next. He said, have changed my life. He said, (laughs) clarifying questions. That is the best thing I've ever seen. Clarifying questions. He said, people here are really listening to others because of this clarifying questions. He said, I'm going to use this in my family. It's so good. Thank you very much. And then he sat down and I thought, (laughs) whoa. Because when he, when he first said you, I was wondering, am I in trouble? But yeah, it, it's.
1: But what, the- what I'm hearing you describe really is just a highly effective form of leadership. I mean, somebody has to create the environment for that collective workshop, collective intelligence workshop to be successful. Somebody has to, you know, somebody has to come up with the concept, get buy in from all the participants. And then ultimately, you know, get the maximum value out of their participation. So, so there is leadership involved here. Is that correct? So let's,
2: let, let's talk about leadership in the two contexts we've been talking about. So in the context you were in, in the military, the one I was in, in Blue Cross Blue Shield, I voluntarily gave up my positional authority to command. And when dif- there were difficult issues that would come up in these sessions, all right, and I would not unilaterally deliberate them. I kept using different exercises for the group to come to its own conclusions. And that was important because I eventually realized. I would But when
1: the, when the group came to its own conclusion, let's just say that you kept, well, what do you think? And what do you think? Well, why do you think that? And why do you think that? And, it, you know, as you're facilitating this process, the group says, this is the direction we want to go. Do you not ultimately then say, okay, let's do it?
2: No. I and I'll give you I'll give you another specific example of, of the most scary moment for me in doing this process. We I was we we're facilitating a session, and the group has come to a an agreement of moving in a direction that I am convinced is wrong. And here is my internal dialogue: I'm thinking to myself, Rod, you're the chief executive of this group. And I can feel this pull. It's your responsibility to pull this group back because Mm -hmm. they are going down the wrong path. Then the next thing I thought of is, if I step in and veto and overrule this group, it will be around this country faster than lightning. Rod Collins believes in collaboration as long as you agree with him. Sounds like a movie title. (laughs) I said, I cannot denigrate this process. And so I said to myself, I have to be quiet and let the group continue on, even though I'm extremely uncomfortable. And what happened next was amazing. They didn't land on that spot. They kept going. And they eventually got to a creative breakthrough idea that none of us could ever come up with. And once we got there, I thought, thank God I did not stop it because When I thought we were in a wrong direction, we were just at a particular milestone on the path. And by not stopping the journey, we got to an incredible place that was an excellent solution that when we did present it to the formal hierarchy, their reaction was, wow, this is really well thought out. And so whenever I had those moments in the future where I thought the group is in the wrong place, I then thought to myself, ah, we must be on the pathway to an amazing breakthrough. And that's what tended to happen. That discipline. Now I wanna get back to this issue of leadership, okay? Mm -hmm. So So, in the context that you and I are both familiar with, you in the military, I in the Blue Cross Blue Shield, and many of our listeners here, okay? Yeah,
1: and and I'm in the, I own a business with 40 employees. I have uh, in today's, you know, mainly millennial workforce, so I have. uh,
2: So if there are people who are intrigued with this, here, chances are they work in a hierarchical structure, and you can do this, okay, but you have to give up your positional authority, you have to say, I'm going to be a gardener rather than a chess master, I'm going to be a leader by facilitating rather than by directing, okay, and let let me
1: just add something to that real quick, leaders who don't understand that positional authority is granted, or more, more specifically, it can be taken away by those who work for you, And that's something that I think positional authority by title, that's maybe what you were hired as, or that's how things start out. But if you are not leading in a very deliberate way, my automatic light keeps turning off, that takes into consideration the needs of the individuals, you know, balance against the needs of your organization. Those people can fire you.
2: Yeah, and so you and those are dynamics that will be working in, in in a hierarchy. Now, again, for our listeners, if they want to do this, they can, and if they're willing to uh, learn the pr- tools and practices, and I would suggest you are probably going to achieve better results than with your traditional ways of managing. You're going to shift from I do twice as much work and get half the fun to I do half the work and have twice the fun, I think yeah, right. Sure now and, when and you so, say traditional so,
1: ways of managing, what what are you specifically referring to?
2: Tra- traditional command and control, I give the directions you follow them. okay. what the one thing, remember, when I did these sessions, I was the one person in the room who couldn't express his opinion. Did, I, I guess again,
1: I guess what I'm kind of referring to there is if I give direction, it's after I've received input from everybody. I have 6 people on my management team and I don't decide anything significant without making sure I have their input and most of those situations they go get input from the rest of their people on their team.
2: That's known as consultative management and I think that's a good approach. This is beyond that. Okay. Um, I I really I really made very few decisions by myself. For sure.
1: A- yeah, absolutely.
2: I, it's Once I discovered this phenomenon of collective intelligence, I turned it into a competitive advantage that was extremely powerful. I really got to, I really believe, why would I ever substitute my thinking, my point of view for the collective intelligence of these incredible people that
1: I work with? I have three questions that I ask.
2: Let's stay on the leadership because I want to contrast it with what happens in true self-managed organization. Okay. And so- in the context that we have been talking about and I'm all familiar and I think that our listeners are familiar about, there's this voluntarily giving up the ability to do command and control direction and to be a gardener and a facilitator. In a true self-management organization, that's not possible because nobody has that authority. No one has the authority to assign work in a self-managed structure. All work is accepted rather than assigned It's self-managed. All people have equal voices, and no one person can get up and say, well, I've heard everybody. This is what we're going to do. That simply doesn't happen. And so they are involved in group decision-making. All the decisions happen in the context of teams. And as counterintuitive as it may sound, it is a faster decision-making process than running things up and down a chain of command which can take sometimes weeks or even months in the team-based structure. It may take minutes or hours, but the decision will get made.
1: Uh, That just seems very, it doesn't seem significantly different than that consultative management, you know, that, that you labeled earlier, you know, to me, that seems maybe uh, an advanced form of that.
2: Well, let me, I'm going to push back a little bit. Okay. Okay. Because,
1: because where I'm going is, ultimately, when you say you relinquish your power, you still have it.
2: No, not in, it's, a, not in a self-managed organization. You, you have it in a hierarchical structure. Let, let, let me, let's, let's describe it in a different way. We hear the term empowerment, okay? And I think what you're alluding to is what good empowerment looks like. What empowerment is, is I ultimately have the power which I didn't in any collective intelligence workshops. I could have any time legitimately stopped and says, well, thank you for your input. This is what we're going to do. Really appreciate that. I would have killed the energy in the group and engagement would have gone down in the toilet. Empowerment says, I am going to delegate the power to make decisions. That's what real empowerment is. And to let you know where those boundaries are. In a true self-managed organization, you don't have empowerment because no one has the authority to give you the power. The power is a given across all the people. And one of the distinctions I make between the way power works in hierarchies and power works in networks, is they tap into two very radically different dimensions of power. In hierarchies, power is a function of force, and it is essentially coercive power. And so we try and teach people to empower people, benevolent dictators, what this is, is use your coercive power very humanely, as humanely as you can. Power in a network taps into an entirely different dimension. It's about energy. And it's, so it's synergistic power. And the power arises from the interactions of the people. They create the power, they co-create it.
1: What about, what about hiring and firing and pay raises? How does the collective group address that? Go so ahead. in
2: self-managed organizations, hiring is done by the group. So people will come in and they'll meet with everybody. And then the group will come up with the process where they decide to do it.
1: Yeah. And Uh, I think that's a, I think that's a brilliant way to bring people on the team. You know, let you let the people they'll be working with decide whether or not uh, they think they'd be a good teammate.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's what the teams look for. Now, how do you get fired? Okay. Well, the way it can, it, it happens is people stop working with you. And all of a sudden, you're not you're not on the team. And so if you're extremely difficult uh, with a team of 10, 10 to 12 people and you're 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 causing them not to meet their goals, they may say, you're not on the team anymore. The group decides that. And now you have to find another team that will that will bring you in. And sometimes you just have mismatches. So the person, you know, may be fired quote quote by one team, but maybe a good match with another, another team and succeeds. So what you wind up doing is you wind up having people and they they self-select who work well together and achieve results. Because if you don't achieve results and compensation is done through generally a team review process. So, for example, the Gorin Associates, they're also a self-managed company. And our listeners may be curious uh, to find out that they're an 11,000 person company they're in 30 countries around the world, a multi-billion-dollar enterprise that's made a profit in every year of its existence since 1958, and in all that time, no one has had the authority to assign work to anybody. And the way things now, the way things work there is, everyone evaluates about 20 people and is evaluated by 20 people, which means you're accountable to peers. And when you're accountable to peers, that's actually more effective than being accountable to a senior boss, because in hierarchies.
1: That is apparent. Uh, maybe that's not a strong enough word. You are accountable to your peers. There's no question about that. And that's that's one of the first things people should understand. In a highly functional organization, you know, in the Navy, we say ship, shipmate, self. Your number one responsibility is to the organization. Your number two responsibility is to your teammates. Yeah.
2: Now, and and this is why it leads to a more effective organization. If I'm accountable to peers, I have to find a way to balance different needs. If I'm accountable to a boss, all I have to do is please that boss.
1: But it's not one or the uh, other. You're accountable to both.
2: uh, Well, if your performance appraisal and your compensation is determined by your boss, there are people, and I'm I'm sure people listening to this and can think of situations where they work with people who it pleased their boss and took the attitude, I work for my boss, the rest of you be damned.
1: Yeah, that's and a terrible attitude. That's not the kind of person I'd want on my team to begin you know, with. But but
2: hierarchical organizations are full of people like that. Mm-hmm. And when push comes to shove, if I if I if I gotta meet a need from my boss and you have a need from me and I got limited time, sorry, I'd like to help you, but I can't. Even though the activity that you might be doing for the peer is going to be more of a contributor to the organization, in peer-to-peer networks, those things get naturally and organically balanced out. And one last thing about Gore's uh, performance system. They don't have this elaborate system where you look at, you know, uh, 50 details. Yeah, yeah, those things are antiquated. One simple question. Uh, on a, you know, uh, how would you rate this person's contribution to the business? Because that's what counts. And contribution to the business means, we're, in, in Gore's words, we're having fun and we're making money.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, no doubt about it. Um, each individual, uh, again, ship, shipmate self, each individual has to contribute to the good of the organization. Otherwise, There's no point in them being there. Folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break for capitalism. I know uh, Rod Collins and myself are both good capitalists and we will be right back.
0: And we are back.
1: Welcome back to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast with me, your host, Bob Pazzini. I am talking to my guest, Rod Collins, former chief executive officer of Blue Cross Blue Shield, an author and somebody who has vast experience in leadership and really shaking leadership up. Rod, in your first book, Wiki, did that address this, this team's approach to leadership?
2: Yeah wiki management describes it's really built around 50 specific tools and practices that are used by different organizations at different levels in applying network management thinking so some of the tools come from some of the companies like gorn associates uh, are described in there and then there are also some tools that we used at blue cross blue shield there are other companies that are that are highlighted in there as well that use uh, uh, Network practices, and and there is a continuum. You can there. There's a lot of hybrid hierarchies and networks. I I just believe that in the long run, the network management model is going to uh, eventually become the basic model of management. Yeah, because I, it manages I, change I, better.
1: I actually think it's in play. I think that organizations who are forward-leaning and forward-looking and, you know, in today's workforce, I would say to survive, you have to be forward-leaning and forward-thinking. But I think most organizations, you know, and I compare against my organization, right? And again, I have 40 employees, 40 people on my team. A lot of what you're saying is done, but just not with the very deliberate approach. And I think what I'm hearing you say is when you do it with that real deliberate approach, approach, you get so much more out of the process. And I think that's great. That is a great thing for leaders to cling to going forward. But given the conversation that we're having, what was your definition of leadership and your approach to leadership? And what is, how do you currently view or define leadership?
2: You know, I'm I'm working on a, on a book now, which is, uh, will be uh, published next year called Nobody's Smarter Than Everybody. But one of it's- I love that title,
1: by the way. Nobody's Smarter Than Everybody. Love it.
2: Which is really gets into the essence of collective intelligence. But one of the chapters in there is entitled Leadership is a Team Sport. And so, as we move from hierarchies to networks, we are having a paradigm shift in what it means to be a leader in, an, in a hierarchical structure. And you know, if you look throughout almost the history of civilization, especially Western civilization, we have the, the 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 archetype of the heroic leader, which is the single individual who will empower and lead people by example and can cause. Great things to happen on a large scale. And, and, and that myth, if you will, is really imbued in, in Western culture. In the network, that heroic leader in that style does not exist. Because in a network, everyone is a leader. Because leadership is something that is done by groups and teams. And so let me give you a, a, a specific example. Gary Hamill is a, is a management guru, really prolific and excellent management author, he heard about this company Morningstar out in California, which is the world's largest tomato processor. They're also a self-managed company. They have no bosses. They've been around since 1990. So they've been operating this way for over three decades. And Gary wanted to walk out and see what does this look like? And as he's walking around and he's being shown by the founder, Chris Rufer, uh, Gary says to him, my goodness, Chris, you have designed an organization where there are no managers. And Chris said, Gary, you have it all wrong. I've designed an organization where everyone is a manager.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. And, that, what,
2: and what he means is anyone can step forward with an idea. Anyone can gather followers. Anyone can lead a team. It isn't ascribed by a hierarchical structure. Because if you want to design your company for innovation, You want people who recognize new ideas to have the ability to collect teams. This exists in Gore. Now, when you give people the ability to run with ideas, that doesn't mean you give them money. Money has to be earned. Processing and, and, and working ideas is free and available to everyone in the full sense of the word freedom. In Gore... They have pitch sessions and so they use the collective intelligence of, you know, they might have pitch sessions with about 40 or 50 Gore associates, and these people pitch, and at the end of it, the group through a dot voting process will decide which one should get funding and which one shouldn't. And then those who don't get funding get feedback on what you need to do to perhaps improve the idea to get funding in a future session. So there's very much this learning aspect. So money always needs to be earned and these structures have a way to do it. But anyone, anyone is free to run with ideas.
1: Again, in my organization, in my experience, as we said earlier, the best ideas usually come from your customer facing people, your teammates who deliver the product or service. And so when, when good ideas come to me, when they come to my level, I ask three questions. The first one is, will it enhance the employee experience. Mm -hmm. Second question is, will it enhance the customer experience? And the third question is, will it enhance the bottom line? That's the order of precedence of the questioning. And if the answer is yes to all three of those questions, then we're probably going to do whatever it is that's being asked for or recommended. Usually the answer is yes to one or two of those questions, but not all three. And that's when as a team, we flush out that concept to see if there's merit. And often oftentimes where we arrive is not the place we started, but kind of to your the point of your discussion earlier, that idea that had merit turns into something really great when we kind of put it through this process, you know, almost yeah. like your collective intelligence process, um, maybe just another way to approach it. But that process that I have used for a long time, I find it to be very valuable, but also number four from the four characteristics you mentioned earlier, aggregation mechanism. How do I hear those voices? How does that idea get to my level? Mm -hmm. And that's a very deliberate process as well. And I do have processes in place and I make it clear on a regular basis that I want to hear from everybody and anybody. No idea is too kooky to mention. That kind of gets to what you were talking about earlier, this, you know, bring these wild, crazy ideas that are, you know, outside the lines or outside the borders, but that stimulates more creative thinking. And, you know, well, well, why couldn't we do that? As crazy as that sounds, why can't we? And to get people to think so anyway, I a lot of the processes you're describing, I think again more forward leaning organizations they're employing some variation of this so going back to leadership then you know how do you define it today how do you def- just generally uh, how do you define leadership i think
2: leadership is the capacity to solve problems do work and get results okay that's the fundamental purpose of an organization and leadership is something that we do together leader is not, uh, and anyone can be a leader and anyone can be a follower. And you will go back and forth between those roles. For sure.
1: Absolutely. There's a time, there's a time to lead. There's a time to follow and there's a time to get out of the way. Or like my buddy Tebow said, this is something his father told him. Sometimes you lead from the front. Sometimes you lead from the middle and sometimes you lead from the rear.
2: Now, just some other concepts on that. I think today a leader is more a facilitator than a director, which means probably the most important leadership characteristic is the ability to listen and understand. One of the problems with hierarchies and why I think they will have a hard time transforming is unfortunately leaders in traditional hierarchies are overpopulated with narcissistic personalities. Agree. And that is dangerous because narcissists don't have empathy. They don't relate to people. Agreed. So I like the questions that you raise. What you know, when does an idea go forward? And you say, well, how will it enhance the people here in the organization? How will it enhance our customers? And will it deliver the bottom line? Those are th- that, that's what Joost de Blok did with Bertzorg in Netherlands. So the motto of his company is humanity over bureaucracy. How are we going to impact human lives? So an important aspect of leadership is the ability to empathize. Without a doubt. When you empathize, you listen and understand. And when you listen and understand before you act, you're more likely to act more intelligently. And then if you bring in the broadest data points that you can, you know, a few whole sessions across your 40 people and, you know, occasionally involve them, we're, we're considering some ideas and And we're going to go through some facilitated processes. I'm going to tap into your thinking and we're going to use that as input into what we do. These are the things that energize people. When two thirds of people say they're disengaged in organizations, they're telling you they find it an inhuman experience. When people want to work at home through Zoom and don't want to come to the office, they're saying you have a toxic place. Why do I want to be there? Yeah, culture and values. If you really have a human environment, people want to be there, they want to be together.
1: Yeah. And that's for at me, least some that, of the time. Yeah. At no, well, that's, time. that's a key aspect of leadership is you create that environment. I think it's incumbent on leaders. I, for me, I call it culture and values. Well, I actually, I don't call it that Glassdoor calls it that and yeah. Gallup calls it that when they do their surveys, they look at cult, you know, what, what are, what are some aspects rank order, these aspects of the workplace and culture and values is one of those. It's actually ranked number one. But in in, in employee surveys, but it's the leader's job to focus on culture and values. Among all the things that a leader has to focus on, culture and values has to be right up there near the top. And if you create an environment with high culture, then you get what you just described. People want to come to work. They, you know, a nice climate is Rod and I work well together. Yes. A nice culture or a great culture is. I love working with Rod, and that is, I think, the objective. One of the primary objectives of leadership is to create those conditions, those high culture conditions that make people thrive. When when I love working with you, and I, and I'm happy to see you, we will thrive in the pursuit of our our task or or our uh, you know whatever it is we do.
2: So to connect what you just said to General. Crystal's uh, advice to stop being a chess master and become a gardener, Alida cultivates the action in networks. Alida directs the action in hierarchies. In hierarchies, only some people can direct in a network anyone can cultivate.
1: I, I agree with that. Again, you know, I'm looking at my 26 years in the military and my now 12 years in the private sector. And yeah, not anyone can cultivate (laughs) so (laughs) there's some people who just they're not there yet
2: well that's one that you and i can disagree with (laughs) yeah i i have watched this i tell you the collective intelligence workshop process was interesting to watch um because i just watched all kinds of people step up and perform in ways that were just incredible were there
1: people who didn't no Okay. Very rare.
2: And and those who didn't left on their own. That's the yeah. interesting thing. Yeah. You don't have to fire anybody because when you have an environment in which people are expected to be responsible, cultivation is essentially the basic act of taking responsibility. I'm going to do what I can to cultivate an environment of working together. That's really see, anybody's capable of doing that. If you can't, then you're going to leave because mm-hmm. They expect me to be responsible and I'm going to find someplace, you know, this whole notion of quietly quitting, right? Is people saying, I'm not going to take any responsibility. They, in, in a way that it's an irony, they give me command and control exactly what they want. I'll do exactly what I'm told and only what I'm told. And that is the worst thing that can happen to a company. Oh, you no,
1: want, no question about
2: it. Yeah. You yeah. want people cultivating. Okay. Because that's what creates excellence in companies.
1: Yeah, so so I'm with you there. And again, you know, the other thing I overlay this against is my high school hockey team. I coach hockey. Every kid on my team is a better hockey player than me, right? So why am I the coach? Because I'm bringing out what's already in each one of those as an individual yeah. and having having them contribute that skill, that capability to the team. And oftentimes what I'll say to to the kids on the team if they went out and did something and I didn't think they did it the right way, I'll say, how'd that go? And they might say, yeah, that didn't turn out so well. And I would say, if that happens again, are you gonna do anything different? Rather than direct them on what to do differently, I want them to give consideration to the situation and come up with their own solution. Because I can tell the kid to go out there and do something different, but he's the one out on the ice. He's gonna do what, what he decides he needs to do.
2: Well, that's the thing about collective intelligence is you're continually learning and focused on that. Because oftentimes the byproducts of collective intelligence was something that no one of us could ever come up with by ourselves. And so it was a level of solution, a level of intelligence in which we learned a better answer than any one of us could have done. And and that's a powerful moment. When groups have that experience, it's incredibly powerful very motivating and tends to get results in the marketplace. When you get to that level of intelligence, you really know what you're doing.
1: Everybody thinks Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Thomas Edison led a team of people yeah. who invented the light bulb. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think the proverb there is if you want to go far, go alone. I'm sorry. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with a group. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Okay. For the listeners at home, if you're enjoying this discussion with Rod Collins, and if you want to know more about the Elevate Your Leadership podcast, please visit my YouTube channel, Elevate Your Leadership. Uh, So just go to YouTube, search for Elevate Your Leadership, and you will see this episode in audio and video format, and you'll see my previous episodes and a plethora of other information, little brief discussions and little clips from different discussions I've had with leaders over the years. And again, these are all things that I know will bring great value to you and your quest to be a better leader. And it will bring great value to your team as your team looks to become more cohesive and more productive. So elevate your leadership on YouTube. You can also visit robertpazzini.com. Rod Collins, what haven't I asked you? What wisdom do you have to share with our listeners that we haven't talked about yet?
2: Well, just remember, nobody really is smarter than everybody. And uh, <laughs> I think collective intelligence is the game changer. If people want to learn more, I've got a website, rodcollins.net. And it'll take you to my Substack column, my books, podcast,
1: and uh, and speaking. So. Awesome. Rodcollins.net. So you, you do speak publicly? Uh,
2: yes. Yeah, I do keynote speaking on this topic.
1: Okay, great. So we have keynotes, we have a book, Obviously, rodcollins.net is the site. You know, you said something earlier, one of the chapters in your book is titled Leadership is a Team Sport. I completely agree. And literally with the sporting concept, again, referring back to hockey. But one of the things I've discovered and I'm deliberate about is good leaders develop good teams and good teammates. And those good teammates ultimately become good leaders. So I, I've worked for some Brilliant leaders, and I've worked for some leaders who I thankfully don't have to interact with anymore. And that's just always going to be the dynamic in the workplace. But leadership is a team sport. I just love that title. Rod Collins, thank you so much for being on the Elevate Your Leadership podcast.
2: Bob, a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. To contact Bob directly or to learn more about how Bob can advance you and your organization through leadership training, team building, executive coaching, and public speaking, visit robertpizzini.com, robert, P-I-Z-Z-I-N-I.com, and connect with him on LinkedIn.